Today we're going to be talking about Psalm 5, which is a psalm that shows us how to pray in times of crisis. Uh, I got word a little earlier that today we're having a little crisis. You know what? For some, it it might be a big crisis. We're having a little crisis with our Zoom. Uh, The audio is not working right. And I don't want to stand up here and preach a sermon about how to pray in times of crisis when we're in the middle of one with our Zoom and we just act like it's no big deal. (laughs) Uh, So let's pray together right now that God would help us as we struggle with Zoom and technology. Be with us as we try to be one congregation with some of us here and some of us online. Let's pray for this little crisis. Father in heaven, we are coming to you right now, right at the beginning of this. Uh, we spend so much of our lives on technology. And when it doesn't work right, sometimes we're so helpless. It feels helpless. Lord, when our tech doesn't work right, we sometimes feel frustrated. We just want to bring that to you. Lord, we lift up our um, folks at home or watching online. We pray that right now that you would be with them, that they would know that we are one congregation together. Lord, we pray uh, for Christopher as he works really hard to fix this right now. Thank you for him. Lord, we pray that this would get resolved and that we'd be able to finish the service together. Lord, we know that our worship and what we do here is imperfect. But you accept us because of Jesus. So we just throw this at him. It says, cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. So here you go. Would you bless us in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, Psalm 5. You know, we've taken a month in the book of Psalms. Psalms. Well, you know what? That's appropriate. Psalms are songs. <laughs> but we've taken a month in the book of Psalms. And um, next week we'll start a new sermon series on the mission and purpose of the Christian life and the mission and purpose of the church. Uh, but until then, we have one more week in the Psalms. And then after that series is over, we'll go back to the Psalms for a few weeks and then move on to another book of the Bible. When that's over, we'll come back to the Psalms. Um, so here we are, Psalm 5. Five weeks into the Psalms. Uh, psalms 1 and 2 were kind of intros to the whole book. And they had big themes like what does it mean to follow God? And what does it mean that God is the king over everything? But then after that, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and Psalm 5 all deal specifically with crisis. And it's interesting that the, Psal- the Psalter, the book of Psalms, which is supposed to be a book of praise, starts out dealing with crisis. And I think the reason for that, when we stop and think about it, is clear. Life is full of crisis. Uh, I told you guys last week about something my dad always said. He said either you, you just went through a crisis or you're in a crisis right now or you got one coming right around the corner. Sometimes he ends that with, that's just life. (laughs) Such a dad thing to say. So, crisis psalms. Psalm 3 was all about David kind of telling the story of himself reaching out to God when his son Absalom rebelled and tried to overthrow the kingdom. That was Psalm 3. 
Psalm 4, which was last week, is a congregational psalm. There's instructions right at the beginning. This is supposed to be sung by the congregation. And it's a song that we designed for people to sing. That's all about what it means to have confidence in God. Psalm 5, it's another congregational song. But Psalm 5 specifically is an example of what it means to pray when we feel the pressure of crisis. It's kind of a how-to. It shows us what to do. So I'm going to read it. We'll read Psalm 5 here together, and then we'll pray. And then I want to just draw out a few things from the psalm that help us to pray in times of crisis. Okay? Psalm 5. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? To the choir master for the flutes, Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make my way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For, you, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this song. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can always trust it. Thank you that it always comes to us with challenges. Lord, I pray that this time, in this time, that you would make us more like Jesus with your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here together would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, last week, I took a trip down to Salem with a friend of mine, and we drove, because, you know, you drive to Salem, and we're driving down I-5, and we hear a pop, and the car kind of starts to, you know, move funny, and we say, I think we popped up tires, so we pulled over, it's kind of a narrow shoulder, just this side of Woodburn, where there's almost no shoulder, he pulls over, I jump out, I look, and lo and behold, the back right tire is gone. It's just totally ruined. And I said, well, looks like we got a flat tire. And my buddy looks over at me 
And then he looks forward and his two hands are on the wheel. He looks at me and he goes, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I said, what? You never changed a tire before? He goes, no. And I said, well, I know how to change a tire. Come on, let me show you. And we jump out of the car and we start working on it. And very quickly, I find out that I do not know what to do. <laughs> I know how to change a tire on a 2002 Nissan Pathfinder. I do not know how to change a tire or did not know how to change a tire on a 1997 Toyota 4Runner. We got the jack under there and jacked it up and, and we were able to take the tire off. And as soon as we did that, the axle went bloop. And there was about this much room between where we're supposed to screw on the new tire and, and the ground. Meanwhile, trucks are flying by, you know, right there on I-5. So uh, I did what any reasonable, resourceful uh, person would do in that moment. I picked up the phone and I called my father-in-law. And he answered, and I got him on FaceTime, I said, hey, I, I need some help here. And he said, show me what you got. And on FaceTime, off of I-5, he walked me and my friend through step by step how to get this tire changed on this particular car. Now, I tell you that story because very often when crisis hits, we know we should pray. Just like me and my buddy knew, we got to change the tire. We know it's important. But when that moment comes to pray, very often we find ourselves like my friend going, I, I, I don't know what to do. Or we find ourselves like me. Oh, I totally know what to do. And then we get in there and we start trying to pray about it and we realize I'm way over my head. Well, thank the Lord for my awesome father-in-law. Being able to call him on the phone and him walk us through it. That's what Psalm 5 is. Psalm 5 is a walk through how to pray in crisis. It's an example. It's a how-to of what to do when things fall apart and you know you need to reach out to God. It gives us words. It gives us a format. You know, life is filled with crisis. I don't have to stand here and convince you of that. I mean, it's pretty obvious. We're living in a COVID world, living in a city that is wonderful but can be frustrating. Uh, we have families full of broken people. We have bodies that experience sickness. Uh, all kinds of crises in our lives. How do you pray in times of crisis? Well, Psalm 5, how to, here we go. Number one, pray directly. Pray directly. Go straight to God with your crisis and tell him what's going on as plainly as you can. Pray directly. <clears throat> we don't know the details about whatever crisis David was going through. I'm thankful for that because it helps this psalm be sort of a universal tool. It fits any crisis. But we do know a little bit it says in verse 5 that there's boastful people. The boastful should not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. It says in verse 6, you, speaking to God, you destroy those who speak lies. Uh, the Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful, the, the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So whatever kind of Dave, crisis David was having when he wrote this, it was probably a relational crisis. There is a boastful person. Uh, there's evildoers. Somebody's speaking lies. Maybe somebody's telling lies about David. Have you ever had somebody tell lies about you? It's horrible. Uh, somebody's being deceitful. Now I wonder, this might be about his son Absalom. 
Remember a few weeks ago when Scott did Psalm 3, we learned that's about when David's son Absalom tried to overthrow the kingdom. If you read in 2 Samuel 14, Absalom is coming to King David and he lays prostrate before him and he kisses King David and pledges his allegiance. You know, I'm, a, I'm your loyal subject. And then just a few verses later, Absalom is at the city gate telling people, you know, King David doesn't really care about you. I'm the one who really cares about you. Come over here and let me tell you about how King David stinks and I'm awesome. Absalom was two-faced. He was deceitful. And a little later in the story, we see Absalom saying to David, Give me your blessing so I may go to the land of Hebron to worship God. David's like, of course, son, you have my blessing to worship God. And then Absalom goes out there and doesn't worship God. He exalts himself and he says, I'm the new king in Israel. David knew what it was like to deal with a relational crisis. We look through his whole life, he has all kinds of crises going on. And we see in this psalm that when crisis hits, when he starts out his prayer, he doesn't start with trying to solve the problem himself. He doesn't start with talking about the person. He doesn't start with thinking through it and thinking through all the problems, different dimensions, even though we can extract some of those from the psalm. He starts by going directly to God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to my cry. My King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. David brings his prayer to God first thing in the morning. First thing that he does. And then he spends, the, the prayer is intentional. He prepares a sacrifice. There is a kind of prayer that's good to do, and many of us practice this, and I think everybody should. It's the kind of prayer where we're sort of always talking to God throughout the day. The 16th century monk, Brother Lawrence, called this practicing the presence of God. I like to think of it as leaving a channel open to God. And throughout the day, you talk to God as you go, and uh, you know, you tell him what's going on and maybe in a tight spot or a moment of crisis you say oh lord help me but then you go about your business that's really good stuff to pray like that but that's not what david is doing here he he goes to uh, where the altar is and david's day would have been the tabernacle a little bit later it would have been the temple he goes to that place he prepares a sacrifice which takes time he prays and then as the sacrifice is burning, he watches. And the, the Hebrew word there for watch, I prepare the sacrifice and I watch, that has a connotation of watching with expectation. He's watching to see what's going to happen. John Calvin in his commentary on this psalm really uh, homes in on that phrase, I prepare a sacrifice and I watch. And Calvin talks about how that I watch business is sort of like what a sentinel would do on a lookout on a wall in a walled city. They're standing there when they're on duty and they are watching the horizon, looking for any sign of somebody coming down the road, friend or foe. David prays in his crisis directly. Maybe it was Absalom, maybe it was something else, but whatever it was, David shows us that in a crisis, go to God with intentionality. Stop what you're doing. 
Be clear with him about what's going on. Now, in our culture, what, in our culture here in Western society, um, one of the things, there's a sign of maturity that is when you have a problem, do everything you can to solve the problem on your own and then go ask for help from somebody else. Commonly in our culture, that's a sign that somebody is resourceful. It's a sign that somebody knows how to uh, attack their own problems. We often think of that as maturity. When we hit a crisis, we do everything we can to solve it. We can't solve it, then we go and we ask somebody to help us. That's not what David's doing here. In the gospel, trying to solve our problems on our own and then go to God later when we're out of resources is not a sign of maturity. That's actually a sign of not knowing what's going on. Because according to the gospel, God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, lived perfectly and died on a cross so that we can have, and then rose from the dead, so that we can have an unhindered relationship of access to him. So that no matter what we're facing in life, no matter what kind of relational drama we have, what kind of sickness we may face, what kind of financial difficulties we might have, whatever's going on in our city, whatever's going on in our world, whatever goes on with our technology, whatever goes on with our church, we can go straight to God and he will hear us. David says, my king, my God, to you I pray. Straight to God. This makes me think about Hebrews 4.16 that says, Let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we, may, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Don't do everything you can do and then go to God. Go to God. Tell him what's going on. Be direct. Okay, that's the first thing. Pray directly. We see David doing that. Here's the second thing we see in this passage. Gives us a how-to, how to pray in times of crisis. Pray your emotions. Pray directly. Pray your emotions. Show God what you're feeling. Communicate it to Him. You know, in our culture here in Western society, um, in our culture, uh, especially among middle-class white folks, uh, we often think that Showing uh, that being maybe too emotionally expressive is something that God doesn't like. We often think that in a crisis, the worst thing you can do is get wrapped up in your emotions. We very often think that emotions are unreliable. They're untrustworthy. And especially in a crisis, we need to be objective, which means non-emotional. And if we're going to come to God... We're going to ask for help. We need again. We need to show him that we, that we, uh, we, uh, you know, we have it together. We need to hide those emotions. We don't see David doing that here in this psalm. David is very emotionally expressive here, and that's not all cultural. That's not just David being uh, ancient Near East Hebrew and us being, you know, 2020, 2020 whatever year it is, 2022 Portlanders. Uh, look at the text. He starts off, he says, and remember, David is not only a grown-up, he's the king. He's dignified. He's royal 
And he says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. You know what groaning is? Groaning is what happens when no words are adequate to express your feelings. That's when feelings come out without vocabulary. That's groaning. He says, Lord, consider it. Think about it. Give attention to the sound of my cry. That's an outcry. That's David. Ah! This is pretty emotional. He goes on. And then he starts talking about the people who are causing him trouble. And he uses really strong language. Language that in my house growing up, we weren't allowed to use. We don't say hate in our house growing up. You never, ever say that. But he says, listen to David. He says, uh, you're, you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil will not dwell with you. Uh, that's a good theological thing. He says, the boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. I want to say, whoa, David, calm down. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Oh, David, let's assume the best from your opponents. Let's not tell God, you know, let's, 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 let's back off with the strong language here. And then he goes on and he starts telling God with very emotionally expressive language how he feels. There is no truth in their mouth. Really, David? No truth at all? There's no good intentions that maybe you don't understand? Their inmost self is destruction. Wow, David, I'm not sure if we should say that about anybody. But he goes for it. Lord, their throat is an open grave. Folks, this language here in the psalm should make us a little uncomfortable. In a way, and David, if I started praying like this during our service, you guys would think that Pastor Charlie's lost it. We don't do this. And then at the end of the psalm, there's like this giant mood swing. He's like, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. It's like, whoa, David, we were just really angry a second ago. Now we're exulting. Exulting means like you're doing a backflip on the inside. You're so happy. And then he, he goes on. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with the... You get the point. The point is, is that David is not hiding his emotions here. He's expressing them to God. Uh, we need to be reminded that feeling our feelings and communicating them to God is not crude. It's not immature. It's actually Christ-like. When Jesus arrived at his friend Lazarus's tomb, he had a total breakdown. He wept. He was there supposed to perform a miracle. And Lazarus's sisters came up and they're like, Jesus, if you would have just been here, and he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he looked at the tomb, he was overwhelmed and he broke down. A man in his 30s who had all power to change the situation stopped and cried his eyes out. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when he was betrayed, he sweat drops of blood asking the Father, please take this away from me. 
Uh, medical professionals have told us that sweating drops of blood is something that only happens when you're under deep, deep, deep emotional express, emotional stress. Jesus had like a total panic attack. Jesus, the perfect human being, prays to God, sweating blood, losing it. Now, God welcomes our emotions. God welcomes our emotions in prayer. God welcomes our emotions in worship. In our tradition, very often we're not used to, if we get filled with joy during worship, we might maybe do a little, but we're, we're not going to go out and uh, you know, be real express. But, it's, you know, God makes us with different personalities. We need to, you know, we, we don't always have to, you need to be yourself. But when you're before the Lord worshiping or praying, be your feeling self. God is impassable. That's one of his incommunicable attributes. What that means is when we speak theologically about God, we we talk about things that are true about him that are true of nobody else. One of the things that is true about God that's not true of anybody else is that he is impassable. Now, what that means is that God is not swayed by his passions. God is never... uh, God is never acted upon by his feelings. God himself never loses it. Every feeling that God has comes out of who he is in his true self. He is unchanging. He doesn't have good moods and bad bad moods. He He doesn't come to a place when it says that God hates evildoers. That doesn't mean that he seethes with anger against them. God is unmoving. But that doesn't mean that he's not emotional. He's passionate about you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So when Jesus comes, when God becomes a human being in the person of Jesus, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the perfection of humanity. He is everything that humanity ever should have been. And on our greatest day, once God renews the whole world. He's the picture of what we're going to be like in the fullness of our potential as humans. And the impassable God becomes a human being who breaks down and cries, who sweats drops of blood. That is a theological conundrum that our greatest theologians can't figure out. But it stands as a testimony to the fact that when you are in crisis and you feel the heat and you need to cry and you need to groan and you need to scream and you need to maybe say, get out some negative feelings. You can go into your house, close the door, get between you and God, nobody else, and you can let it go. Folks, that is good, good news. And because of Jesus, our impassable God experiences fellowship with you in your emotional expression. And we see in this example with David that he welcomes it. Okay, Charlie, what about emotionalism? 
I've seen on YouTube, or maybe I went to a church one time, or something like my, my friend told me. You know, some Christians, they just go way overboard with this. You know, I've heard they have churches where everybody's just like, woo! What about, what about when, isn't there a time when emotions go too far? Well, sure. God doesn't call us to be dominated by our emotions. God doesn't want us to be, just like he himself is not dominated by his emotions. We're created in his image. He wants us to grow. That's one reason he gives us his Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, is self-control. But don't be mistaken. Bringing your emotions to God, feeling your feelings and praying them, or singing them with full emotional expression, that's not the same thing as being dominated by our emotions. And if anybody has ever told you that getting emotional in worship is bad, or a sign that you don't get it, or that you're not reverent, or that you're not honoring God, that person was not telling the truth. When we face a crisis, God, he already knows what you feel. But he invites you to let it out before him. We have here an example in the scriptures of King David pouring his heart out, using some, even using, in my house growing up, bad words. God can handle it. He meets you in that distress. And you know what? It's bring it to God so you're not pushing it down and trying to suppress it. And later, uh, it comes out in a way that you didn't want it to come out. I really like the words of uh, a songwriter named um, Travis Meadows. He has this song called Sideways. The song's about addiction. And in the chorus, he says, you push it down, it comes out sideways. You push it down, it comes out sideways. Bitter roads turn into highways. You push it down, it comes out sideways. That's true. When you try to stuff those emotions and you hide them from God, it'll come out sideways in a way you don't want it to. God says, bring those to me. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties before the Lord because he cares for you. Okay, pray directly. Go straight to God with your problem. Pray emotionally. Tell God how you feel. And last, pray the gospel. Pray the gospel. Confess your reliance upon God and his grace. This is so clear in this psalm. David had just got done saying that God can't be around evil. Evil people have no place in his presence. He gets emotional and he he says that maybe the strongest way he can think of. God hates evildoers. But then he says in verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. He doesn't say, but I, because I'm not like those fools, enter into your house. No, no, no. He doesn't say, but I, because I didn't do bad stuff, enter your house. No. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. The gateway into God's presence for David David, a sinful man, who he himself was an evildoer. The way he got into the presence of the God who isn't going to handle being around evil because that's not who he is. The way David gets in is through the doorway of God's unbelievable, steadfast love and grace. 
David says, I bow down toward your holy temple. And David's day and the time after the temple, the tabernacle the temple, that's where sinners met God. That's where sacrifices were made to atone for sins so that people can enjoy God's presence and receive his blessing. And David was looking forward. Through the abundance of your steadfast love, I come to you. I bow down toward your temple. But we here today, we look back and we remember Jesus himself claimed to be a new kind of temple. A temple for all nations. A temple that's not in a fixed building or location, but the door, the gateway to God and his blessing. Folks, we need to not just remember when we have a crisis that God is here for us. He covers us like a shield. He receives our emotions. He protects us. He holds us. He walks us through it. God doesn't do that because we're good people. God does that because Jesus Christ was a sacrifice for your sins. And today, Jesus stands as a human being in the presence of the Father. And he says, these folks, Father, coming to you, they're my brothers and sisters. They're coming through me. So we believe the gospel. But Charlie, you said just a second ago, pray the gospel. What's that about? Well, folks, that's what David's doing. So we pray. We tell God what we believe about him. Tell God the gospel that you believe in. Well, Charlie, why should I tell God? Doesn't God know the gospel? Doesn't God already know that Jesus came to die on a cross so that I can have fellowship with him? Why? What, what's the use in that? Do you guys know that the purpose of prayer is not information transfer? It's communion. And when we pray the gospel, when we use our words to tell God that we are coming to him only because of his grace and his love, and that we are coming to him expecting to be received by him because of Jesus, when we tell God that, it deepens our communion with him. And this gets to the kicker in the whole thing. Do you know what the answer is for every crisis? There's something greater than just getting your problem solved. There's something greater than God stepping in and making somebody stop talk bad about you. There's something greater than getting your spare tire fixed. There's something greater than getting Zoom working. There's something greater. God doesn't offer us simple solutions to our problems. God offers us himself. And in the midst of any crisis, we can go to him and we can receive him. That's why this ends with you bless the righteous and you cover them with favor like a shield. Because in communion with God, that we experience in prayer, when we go to him, we show him our true self. And when we meet him, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter how sick we are. We know God. And that gets us through any crisis. So pray directly. Go to your Father who loves you. Pray emotionally. Let it rip. Pray the gospel. There is nothing you can do 
Oh, believer in Jesus, there is nothing you can do to lose his favor. He covers you like a shield. Let's pray.